0: Yo, how are we doing? <laughs> Janetta? What's up? Did you guys get some sleep? No? Who said that? Not much. I love it. Me neither. Not a whole lot. Now, how many of you guys are in the junior and high school? Anybody? I'll tell you about my life when I was a junior in high school. It would be fair to say that it was not my prime. Um... When I was a junior in high school, well, let's just put it this way, my senior year in high school, I'm, I'm six foot now, but I was 5'5 five, five going into my senior year of high school, so I, I was not grown up yet. But I had a, a nickname that they called me in high school, and that was Ritz, uh, and that was because I could fit a Ritz cracker in between each of my teeth because I had so many gaps in my teeth, and I would kind of go one, two, three, four, five, and so still today if I see someone from high school they'll call me Ritz. I had to ask a girl to the winter, spring, or like formal when I was a junior, senior, and she said, uh, I said, hey, will you go with me to the formal, and she said, why don't you call me back after you get braces? So So I pray every day that the Lord will judge her future descendants. Um, kidding. Um, But it wasn't my prime. That's why I'm like the Algerian iris, a late bloomer, a flower that blooms in the spring. So, anybody here a late bloomer? Welcome, welcome, welcome here. You, are you a late bloomer? No, well, behind you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, not me. Okay. Well, good. Well, hey, I'm grateful to be with you guys again this morning. Uh, I hope you stayed warm. I want you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians 4. We're going to be jumping in, and we're going to talk about the nature of sin today. What you just saw in the video was important. The video showed us that there are a level of impurities in our life that need to be refined, And that is revelatory of the nature of sin, but we're going to go even one step further and talk about sin at its core, which is who we are. But today, I want to make this really easy for you, and hopefully easy for me as I teach. I want to talk to you about five realities regarding sin, five realities regarding sin, and we're really going to... Anchor our time in Ephesians 4, where we left off yesterday, where Paul is writing a letter to the Ephesian church. It's a real church at uh, modern day Turkey. And let me just read the passage. This is Ephesians 4 17. It says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, and the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Those three verses really provide for us an element and an understanding regarding sin now if you know you haven't grown up in the church many of the places that you probably see the word sin uh, most common are on menus we have dessert menus that are sinfully delicious or the seven layers of chocolate too, you know that are temptation you know like that are tempting and we use the similar language to describe treats and delicacies But when the Bible talks about sin, this is a life and death matter, so we need to make sure we understand five realities about sin in the passage that we just read. The first reality is that sin blinds us, if you're a note taker, sin blinds us from thinking rightly, from thinking rightly. Look at verse 17. It says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. It says in the futility of their mind, And that says being darkened in their understanding your life and my life of sin is established upon a foundation of distorted and twisted thinking. Now, if you want to turn with me for a second to Genesis 3, I want you to keep your place in Ephesians, but I want you to understand that sin itself is grounded upon distorted thinking, and this is the way Satan works. Now, maybe you think of Satan, you think of like a bad guy from a cartoon, like with a pitchfork and like little horns, but Satan is a real being. Evil is embodied, and in Genesis, we looked at this last night God created a grand world and he said everything is good in Hebrew he says everything is tov ma'ov everyone say tov ma'ov Tov ma'ov means everything was very good, and God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and verse 15, it says, "'The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "'From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat from it you shall surely die.'" Meaning that God gave him this lush garden. Maybe you think of like Hakuna Matata, the Lion King, everything's wonderful, birds and waterfalls, whatever it might be. And he said, everything here is for your enjoyment. I've given you good gifts because I am a good God. Go, subdue creation, name the animals, be fruitful and multiply, have lots of babies. And from the one tree you may not eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But here's how... Sin works and here's how Satan works in your life. Genesis three, now if, if you wanna understand why the world is the way it is, you need to understand page three of your Bible. This is not just some story, this is not an analogy, this is the reason things are the way they are. In Genesis three it says now the serpent was more crafty, verse one, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Here's the way Satan works. The first question asked in human history is a question that casts doubt upon the goodness of God. Before this question, in chapter three, there were only answers. But the first question asked in human history is a question that suggests that God is limiting that he's a killjoy, a cosmic killjoy. He's not after your enjoyment, he's not for your good, he's narrow, and has God really said, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, did God say they can't eat from any tree of the garden, what's the answer? No, God had said you cannot eat from how many trees in the garden? One, but the way Satan works is he wants you to think God is restrictive, he's narrow, he's no fun and he's not after your joy. So Satan doesn't deny everything God says. What he does is twist what God says. And watch how Eve becomes now twisted in her thinking. This is the way sin works. She responds and says, the woman said to the serpent, verse two, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we actually can eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden God has said, you shall not eat from it or what? What is it? Touch it or you will die. Did God say they can't touch the tree? No, but Eve is already adding restrictions to what God had said because sin blinds you from thinking rightly. She's already bought into the lie of the serpent. Yeah, God is cosmic killjoy. He's not after my good. Not only can I not eat from it, I can't even touch it. Maybe I can't even look at it. And Satan comes and responds and says, the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What sin does is it blinds you from thinking rightly. It makes God seem a certain way And now, what we see in Genesis is that sin will now enter the human race, and everyone will be affected because it'll say when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loin coverings. This is a tragedy. We now live in a corrupted world because sin, that one sin, ushered in sin for all of humanity, and now everyone is born into sin. But in our corrupted world, that is most evident with our corrupted level of thinking. In Romans 1, it says that God has given us over to corrupted thinking. In Titus 3, it says that you too before these people were saved, it says that you too were foolish, disobedient, and deceived in your minds. The word in Greek to describe those who are deceived in their minds is the same word used by Plato to describe a wandering star with no fixed anchor. Because apart from Christ, the person right now going through life is like a wandering star. They're easy prey for false teaching. They're easy prey for their own deception. They are corrupted in their thinking. You might be smart and you might be academic. You might wanna go to an Ivy League school, but even the academic thinking of our world is blinded because it's not necessarily conjoined to the revelation of who God is. And that's why 2 Timothy 3, 7 says that you could always be learning and never come to a knowledge of the truth. Because who pushes sin today? Who's the most progressive people in the world? The brightest minds at Ivy League schools because it doesn't mean that you have to be, it doesn't mean that you're not intelligent in the world's eyes, because often what we see is the smartest people are the most blind to the truth of who God is. Sin blinds you from thinking rightly. You begin to think God is more restrictive than he really is. Now look at verse 17 again in Ephesians. It says, bear with me for a moment. It says that you too, being darkened in their understanding, and then verse 18 says, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. The second reality about sin is that sin alienates us from the life of God. Paul says that our sin excluded us from the life of God. Back in Genesis three, it says that when Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid themselves from god and they covered themselves in the trees and god comes and asks them where are you now when god asks questions in the bible it's not because he needs to know answers it's because he's trying to press a truth home upon our conscience when the scripture says what sin is in your life that no one else knows about but god it's not because god doesn't know every nook and cranny of your head and heart it's because he wants to press questions home upon your conscience and so god comes to them and says where are you adam and eve and they're running from God. The great tragedy of what happens in the Bible is that man who was created by God and for God and was created on purpose that they might dwell with God is now running from his presence. You were created with a God-like deposit. We talked about this last night. You were made in the image of God and being made in the image of God, you were made in order that you might rush into God's presence. But now that you are born into sin, you are now someone who is alienated and excluded from God's presence. This is the great tragedy of what takes place on page three of your Bible. It's not just that sin brings in death, it's that sin brings in banishment, exclusion, alienation. And it says that every single person in Ecclesiastes 3 Every person on planet Earth knows that there is something in their soul that is hardwired for eternity and they long to have Eden restored in their own hearts. The rest of the Bible is not a story about people pursuing God. It is a story about God pursuing, showing his grace, showing his mercy to people who constantly reject him. And as we have seen, because men are ignorant of the truth, because they're darkened in their mind, or the reason they're darkened in their mind, and the reason they're blinded in their thinking, is because they are alienated from God. And people that are alienated from God, you see this kind of in the, in the Devo throughout your week in your workbook, there's only two options for someone right now, biblically speaking. You're either a child of God or an enemy of God. Because apart from a savior, what the Bible teaches is that everyone who is born in their sin is alienated from him. Now you might go, man, this is heavy for a Saturday morning. Well, I want you to understand why we need a savior because you can never mean what you sing until you understand the nature of sin, never. You will never sing with an honest heart, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. What's that next line? That saved day what? Wretch, Grace will never be amazing to you unless you believe you're a wretch. And you'll never believe you're a wretch until you understand your fallen condition. And you'll never understand your fallen condition until you understand, biblically speaking, what the Bible says about sin. Sin is a disdain for God's authority. It's a dismissal of God's rule. And it is a rejection of God's person. So sin blinds us from thinking rightly Secondly, sin alienates us from God. And third, in Ephesians four, sin makes man morally insensitive. Look at back at verse 18, it says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and watch this, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over, we'll stop there, it says that they have become callous. Now, when I was in junior high, I wanted to learn guitar because there was a band DC Talk at the time. Uh, ahead of your time counselors, anybody? Okay. I just, I went to my guitar teacher and he said, why do you want to learn guitar? And I said, I need to know how to play Jesus Freak and what if I stumble? So I went there and he looked at my fingers and he was a Romanian guy and he looked at me and said, You're, you have baby fingers. You need to grow calluses on your finger. Calluses, when you're learning guitar, are what makes the sting of the string no longer, you don't feel it anymore. I remember when I was learning guitar, it was like my fingers would bleed, and I'd be like, ah, anything to play the song. But now I have calluses on the bed of my finger, right, that make me no longer really vulnerable or really feel the sting of the string at all. What the Bible says about sin is that the person that continues to live in sin It's that their hearts become so callous that they no longer feel any guilt upon their conscience. There's no sting of this is wrong, this is wrong, I shouldn't be doing this. It's that their hearts become callous and even numb to what they are doing. You are made to feel guilty when you sin. You're made to feel guilty. God has given every single person, it says in Romans 2.15, that God has hardwired something on your heart and it's his moral law, which means that when you sin, you're supposed to feel there's something not right about this, which is why even I travel almost every week when I sit down on a plane next to an atheist and I ask him a question, you know, they say, I'm an atheist. And I say, well, what do you do with your guilt? And they, I don't know. Because if there's no God, you should never feel any guilt because there should be no standard by which you're judging or measuring yourself. But within every heart, even an atheist heart, there's an understanding, I've sinned, I've done wrong. I've not lived a perfect life. I've looked at pornography or I've divorced my wife or I've yelled at my kids and there's a sting there. But the way sin functions is that you begin to sin so much and so much, it's like this hardening upon your own conscience where the radar that used to say, ah, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, is no longer there. Your conscience is a God-given gift to you to tell you, I'm not right. But Paul says in Ephesians four, people become hardened in their conscience. Maybe you remember something right now Where years ago, you almost used to shake when you would do something you knew was wrong. And now it's just another Tuesday. That's what Paul says sin does to you. It hardens your conscience. I was on a radio interview a few months ago and it was a debate, kind of panel discussion between two guys that had grown up in the church and specifically that were pastor's kids and um, they set me up on this three hour moderated discussion with another guy, his name was Johnny and they wanted to have me as a pastor's kid and he's a pastor's kid who has deconstructed. He's walked away from the faith and he no longer, uh, says he's a Christian, he he says I I just don't, I didn't wanna follow that anymore but I asked him about right or wrong, and he goes, I don't believe there's a right or wrong because I'm an atheist now. And I played out a scenario, this comes out I think next month, and it's fascinating to me. I said, okay, Johnny, you don't believe right or wrong, what if I walked into a gas station with a gun, took down everyone in there, stole the money from the cash register, would you say that's not wrong? And he said, why did you do it? And I was like, Uh, because I love money and love hurting people, hypothetically. And he said, I cannot say that's wrong. Right, because he's being at least honest with his own standard of belief. He can't actually say something is wrong if there's no God. So he says, I can't honestly believe that's wrong, but what I would say is it's not productive to the society that we live in. It's not productive. I said, okay, let me play out another scenario for you. And you can watch this, I think, next month. I said, let's get, say I get in a van. I see a bunch of people I don't like. Pedal to the metal, plow them over. Is that wrong, Johnny? And he looks at me and says, I can't say it's wrong. Why did you do it? Because I hate Mondays. And he said, I can't say it's wrong. I would say it's not productive to the society that we live in. And it sounds funny to you, but just to let you know, That's the most honest answer from someone who doesn't believe in God. Because if there is no God, there is no standard of righteousness. And if there is no right or wrong and there is such a suppression of our conscience, because nothing should be wrong because we're just grown up germs. We're cosmic accidents. Who gets to be the judge of what's right or wrong? And so a guy like Johnny that I'm sitting with has so deeply and so strongly suppressed his conscience over time that now he would say there is no right or wrong. But you are made in such a way with a godlike deposit that when you sin, you feel the sting of it. Or maybe you used to feel the sting of it, but now it's just normal. But Paul says here that men have become callous. It says having become callous and in the original language, it's a present progressive reality, meaning that people who continue to live this way, it's just like they keep on adding shield over shield over shield to their conscience, that you would no longer even be be able to penetrate how deeply fortified their conscience has become. It's so numb. The longer people live in sin, the more comfortable they are with their sin and the, the harder it is for them to recognize they need to be recrafted, to be remade. Number four, fourth reality about sin, look with me at Ephesians, verse 19. It says, having become callous, they have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. The fourth reality about sin is that sin is destructive. Now, here's a plastic knife. I got this from Luke. Maybe you're familiar with how the native Inuits hunt in northern Canada and Alaska. They share their home with the apex predator, the wolf. Now the way that the native Inuits hunt these giant wolf is they do so with the wolf's weakness in mind. So what they do is they take a blade, they dip it in blood and freeze it. They dip it in blood and freeze it. They dip it in blood and freeze it and they do this seven times over so that the blade is completely concealed by a thick layer of blood that is frozen on the blade. What they'll do then is they'll take that massive blade, the blade itself being this large and they'll stick it blade up in the snow and they'll do so at night and the wolves will smell that blood from miles away at night and they'll howl and they'll run and they'll rush to the blade. And because their desire for blood is so strong, they'll lick and the lick and the lick at the blade. And over time, they'll lose sight of the reality that the blood that they are licking on the blade is not the frozen blood, but their own blood as they lacerate their tongue against the keen edge of the blade that is now exposed. Some of them will recognize what they're doing, but they love their their lust for, for blood so much that they just go and they go and they go. Some of them realize it, but it's too late. And when one elderly Inuit hunter returns in the morning, he'll find a pack of wolves dead around a single blade because they cannibalize themselves. Their desire for blood was satisfied by their own and their own desires lead them to destruction. Sin is destructive. And Paul says people give themselves over to their sin. Here's what you need to understand about sin. Sin is aggressive, it destroys, and the foolish person underestimates the appeal and seductive power of sin. Sin destroys in this life, and sin will continue to destroy but never finally destroy in the next life. The Bible says that in hell you'll always be dying but never be dead. The end is punishment in hell. Can we talk about hell for a second? Um, I don't know the church context you grew up in. But would you listen to me on, on, I wanna just answer maybe your questions about hell for a second. The most unloving thing anyone could ever tell you is that God doesn't punish sin. It could be disguised as care and concern, but someone who truly cares for you will not disguise or conceal a reality in the Bible that is impossible to ignore This obviously feels heavier, but you have to understand this, that some people are on a mission to magnify the love of God because they don't want you to be afraid of God in one sense. So in order to magnify his love, they erase or diminish his justice and that he punishes sin. But whatever your view of God is, it's an inaccurate view if it doesn't withhold a category where God hates sin, punishes sin, We sing about how Jesus came to die, but the question you must ask is why did Jesus come to die? He says, Father, let this cup pass from me in the garden. What was the cup Jesus said, I want it to pass. What was the cup? It was the cup of God's wrath, the full measure of God's wrath. You understand that what Jesus bore on the cross for you if you're a Christian was the full outpouring of the wrath of God for all sin, for all of those who would believe. And if the reality of God's wrath is biblical and true, then it is the most important thing you must address in your life. More important than any political reality or economic reality is the reality that one day, maybe soon, you will stand before God and you will go to either one place or another and that is heaven or hell. And the reality is that scripture doesn't whisper about hell, there are 162 references to hell in the New Testament alone, and Jesus ushers 70 of them himself. But even this idea of red letter Bibles where what Jesus says is different than the black letters, that destroys the reality that every word in scripture is inspired by God. And it is all equally authoritative. And Jesus says in Luke 12, I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear him who can cast body and soul into hell. Jesus was the most loving man to ever live. And in his love, he never hid or concealed the reality that one day you will stand before God and all sin will be judged because God is a holy God, we learned this last night, and he does not tolerate sin. He's not a cosmic grandpa that laughs off the high treason of his grandkiddos. He is a righteous judge. And so your sin needs to be understood within this category. It's not just that sin mildly displeases God. It says in Psalm 7, the Lord hates unrighteousness. And then we say, well, God loves the sin, or God hates the sin, but not the sinner. Well, I don't know, because it's not just sin that's punished for eternity. It's sinners that are punished for all of eternity. And so what you and I need is an answer to our problem. Maybe you can go heavy for a Saturday morning, but you understand that no one cries out for a savior until they realize their lostness Grace is not amazing to people that think they don't really need it. The fifth reality about sin is sin is not just what we do, it's who we are. Now, last night, remember I talked about that movie, The Princess Bride, right? And the princess bride, you remember Prince Wesley dies, right? And remember, they go to see the guy, right? That's supposed to make him alive. What's his name? Miracle Max. And they take him to Miracle Max and they say, hey, Prince Wesley died. We need him to be alive. You know, and he goes, ah, your friend is not, he's not dead. He's mostly dead. And then he says, mostly dead is slightly what? Alive. And then they say, well, what do we have to do? And he said, well, if he's slightly alive, then we can help him out. But if he's all dead, then the only thing he can do is dig through his pockets for loose change. Now, what we need to understand about our condition is that many people view their life before God as one who is mostly dead, which is slightly alive. And then what God comes to do is wake us up. He gives us a cup of coffee or defibrillates our condition back to life. But what you need to understand about the nature of sin is that you are not mostly dead apart from God in your sin. You are all dead. Look back with me at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1, and it says, and you were what? Talk to me. Dead "Dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And then watch this, and were by nature children of wrath. Meaning that's the only thing we deserved was the wrath of God, even as the rest. Anybody, who's the tallest person in here? Anybody think that they're probably, anybody like six five? How tall are you? What well, about the hotel? 6'3". Okay, come here for a second. Come here, I need you. Anybody here like under like five foot flat? Okay, come here, Knight. Come here. All right, what's your name? Daniel. Daniel, come here on stage. So- Who's this, Timothy? Yeah. Timmy. Timmy, okay. What's your name? Daniel. Daniel, where are you from? Uh, West Springfield. Westernfield? West Springfield. West Springfield, okay. Wait, wait, you're Danny? Yeah. And Timmy, okay. Now, Timmy, how tall are you? I think like 5'1". 5'1", okay. Now here's what you need to look at, and when we talk about sin, here's the way we often think. Uh, Danny is a 6'3", and so let's say in this scenario, he's a massive sinner, okay, right? He's a big sinner, bad guy, he's, uh, he, he's killed people, he's a Celtic fan, all of the worst things in the world. Now, let's say in this situation, Timmy, you're like a pastor's kid, okay, and You're a good boy. The worst thing you've ever done is not go to both services on Sunday, okay? Now, come here for a second. I want you to understand something about God. When God looks at our sin, God's not going, whoa, Danny, big sinner. Timmy, okay, bro, I see you've tried. You've done a decent job. Let's just clean you up. No, when God looks at sinners, whether that's Hitler or Mussolini, or a pastor's kid, dip down for me for a second, he sees us all on the same level because your God does not grade on a curve. He is a righteous judge and not a cool professor, meaning that when he's looking at your sin, he looks at your sin on one standard and against the standard of his perfect holiness. So he's not looking at us like big sin, little sin, he's looking at all of you as dead in your sin. All right, give it up boys, thank you. <laughs> So understanding your sin is important because you sin, you're a sinner, not because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. Does that make sense? Meaning that barking doesn't make a dog a dog. Dogs bark because they are dogs. And the reason your life is full of sin is because in your very nature, you are a sinner. You are dead in your trespasses, and sins. Jesus has a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus in John three, and he says all that is flesh is flesh. He's saying every single person, here's what the Bible's gonna teach us, is that every single person born as a descendant of Adam, which is everyone, is now has sin hardwired into their DNA. It says in Psalm 51 five, that in sin my mother conceived me. You know, Luke Bryan has a song, country song that came out and he goes, people are basically good and what they need is education to reform their behavior. What the Bible teaches is that you're not basically good. The Bible teaches that you are dead in your sin, and what the dead in their sin need is not a spring cleaning of their heart. What the dead in their sin need is a miracle of God in order that they might be renewed, remade, and in our theme, recrafted, because it's nothing short of a miracle of God to take an enemy of God and transform them into a child of God. And you will always have a diluted and diminished view of the work of God until you realize that it is nothing short of a miracle. God needs to take a heart of stone and transform it into a heart of flesh that longs to know him. One of the greatest barriers to the gospel is not just our perceived amount of sin. You know, I've met a lot of people that say, I've done too many bad things, Johnny. But do you know I've met even more people that probably in their heart of hearts don't actually think they need a savior because the greatest barrier to the gospel is not someone's badness. It's their perceived moral goodness that they might go, yeah, Jesus is a savior, but they never actually thought they needed one. The greatest barrier to a right relationship with God is that you know the answers, but you don't know the savior. Many people can confess that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it's another thing in in three verses or four verses earlier in Romans 3, 19, it says every mouth must be stopped before God. Meaning that I have a question for you and your eternal soul hangs in the balance. Have you ever come to a recognition of your sin where you would honestly say, I have nothing to say before a holy God and I only can plead the mercy of Jesus Christ because there's no one in heaven that thinks they deserve to be there, no one. There's different languages in heaven, different color of skin in heaven, different backgrounds from different time periods, but no one there thinks they deserve to be there. Maybe your life is full of temptation. Maybe you have sin in your life no one knows about. Maybe you've been tangled in the web of temptation. Maybe you're in an adulterous relationship. Maybe you're in an immoral relationship. Maybe you have secrets that your parents don't know. Maybe you're addicted to pornography in your phone. Maybe there's things going on that no one knows about. But the reason the Bible says we sin first and fundamentally is because of our nature. And so what Jesus in the gospel is gonna do, and and I wanna talk about this tonight, so this is really just a setup for this evening. In the gospel, friends, what Jesus does is not just forgive us. He must remake us. He must make us new because my heart and your heart crave sin and will always crave sin until the Savior changes us We have to be remade, that's what we saw in the video. He must take these impure materials and not just clean them, but recraft them. I mentioned last night that we live in a broken world and the reason we live in a broken world is because it's full of broken people. The problem with the world is us. And what broken people need is a savior maybe just the last thing I would say about sin and, and maybe you're on this journey where you think maybe at 35 you'll give your life to the Lord when you want to have a family can I just tell you that sin also never satisfies in any lasting way sin will always make many promises but never fulfill those promises it'll destroy your life Maybe there's even things that you need to confess, but you're tempted to conceal them because you're clinging to them now. My dad used to tell me the story of in Africa when we've both been to Africa a number of times, the hunters there hunt the monkeys in a specific way. They hang mason jars from the trees. And then they put nuts inside of the mason jars, their little mason jars, and they'll hang these from the trees, and the monkey will reach his hand inside of them like this. But when he goes to make a fist and to bring his hand out of the jar, it's too large. And they'll struggle there all night long. And in the morning or in the evening, the hunters will come and just bam them with the, just on the head. Because the only way that they could escape is if they let go of what they're clinging to. But they cling to it. They love it. They know destruction is coming. But instead of choosing wisdom, they cling and they grasp at it. You need to understand that sin destroys, but it also never satisfies. It'll ruin your life. It only brings misery. This morning, we've talked about how inside of our hearts, there's a big problem. And maybe you've gone, man, this is, this is a lot, Johnny. And I know it's a lot, but it's what's in God's word. And it's what you need to understand. And there's nothing more in this life that I would want you to be thrilled by than the love of God. And I'll talk about this this evening, but here's what you need to know for now. What Jesus does on the cross for us is he bears the full penalty for every lustful glance, every angry word, every element of bitterness and anger, all of the sin that we deserve punishment for. God looked at Jesus on the cross, declared him legally guilty of all of that sin and then crushed him. But you will never be able to sing amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me until you understand the nature of your condition. Sin blinds you from thinking rightly. It alienates you from God. Sin calluses your heart and hardens you towards the truth. Sin is destructive and sin is who you are in your very nature. And what you need more than anything is to be remade and recrafted. Will you pray with me? God, we love you and we're so thankful for your word. I'm so glad I never have to ask you for the words to say because you've given us the words to say in your holy word. God, Lord, the, the topic of sin is, is sobering. And maybe someone's here, man, I thought this was gonna be fun. I'm at camp. But Lord, there's just nothing more important because it says in Hebrews, it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. I would be remiss not to include these necessary realities. Thankful for the job of Hume to include this as as something that's so essential to understand. God, we pray that we would understand who we are by nature as sinners and what sinners need as a savior. But only those who recognize their lostness can be ready to be found in Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would preach a stronger sermon through your Holy Spirit than any man ever could. I'm grateful that you saved me from my sin and you can save every person here from their sin if they believe in Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that this evening. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.